Hello everyone and welcome back to Reason Waves, a podcast series on local solutions to European and global issues. I'm Fiorella Lavornia and I will be your host for the next episodes of this podcast. I started covering cohesion policy right before the COVID pandemic. And just a few weeks after, the new president of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, inaugurated her mandate. But if we are to go down the European path, we must first rediscover our unity. At least to me, September 19 feels like a lifetime ago. The EU was bouncing back from the euroscepticism wave, and it was not taken for granted at all that the member states were ready to invest more in shared resources. Since then, the EU reacted to COVID-19 by mobilizing an unprecedented amount of money and by investing in the bloc's resilience to future shocks. And the cohesion policy funds allowed the necessary flexibility to withstand the impact of the pandemic. This scenario repeated itself in 2022 when long-term development funds were used in the context of the Ukraine refugee crisis. Global and geopolitical threats prove that the EU can act quickly and united, at least in the way it uses its money. Will this trend affect the objectives of the cohesion policy? And what about the next EU budget, since the war in Ukraine will have consequences for the EU security, but also on the path for the green transition? To unpack these complex issues from the angle of cohesion policy, I will begin by introducing Kadri Ustel, Head of the Unit for Coordination and Programs at the Directory for Regional and Urban Policies at the European Commission. Kadri, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So my first question for you is, why among different instruments was the cohesion policy the best place tool to help the bordering regions that were welcoming the refugees? Thank you for the question. Um, the cohesion policy is, uh, is quite uniquely qualified to help uh, when regions find themselves in, in a crisis because we have already uh, almost 400 programs up and running. We've got managing authorities. We have a direct channel to all European regions. So when a crisis hits, we were able to very quickly mobilize EU help uh, to these regions which were facing something unexpected and unprecedented, cohesion policy was already there. So we had the contacts, uh, we had the programs, we had the channels to make funding available. Thank you very much for your answer. As long as you know, there is still some availabilities uh, coming from the funds of 2014-2020. And what happens when they finish? Uh, can the bordering regions access to the funds of 2021-2027 programming period? So for the 1420, we are now in the last eight months of spending. The spending deadline is the end of this year. Where there still is money at the level of uh, programs, the programs know best, and they are still able to use it uh, to help refugees. We also have the next uh, support package, which is called SAFE, which is to help companies and vulnerable families with, uh, uh, with high energy bills. Where the 1420 program is finished and there is no funding left, they are able to use now the 21-27 programs, which have all been adopted, supporting, um, well, refugees, but officially they are called third country nationals, people with migrant background. This support has always been possible uh, under ESF and is possible uh, from 21-27 as well. So if the 
refugees need uh, prolonged uh, support uh, and 1420 program has run out of money, it is possible to support them under the 21-27 programs. This wasn't the first time that the cohesion policy funds were using an emergency crisis because we have the precedent of the pandemic. Do you have the feeling that the cohesion policy, which is a long-term development policy, it's somehow changing its scope? I certainly don't. I was there when the pandemic hit and uh, we helped the programs, the managing authorities, all the regions through making sure they could use cohesion policy to deal with the immediate effects and the long-term effects uh, of the pandemic. I think cohesion policy was very well placed to do that. Again, we had the infrastructure to reach regions and uh, we had the possibility to give them extra funding. REACT-EU was then brought in uh, to, to provide extra funding for the recovery, for the green and uh, digital uh, transition. Cohesion policy was the right support tool because it helped prevent a much worse outcome of the pandemic. Of course, actually save lives by providing the possibility to buy ventilators for hospital to create extra hospital spaces. But we also help to save companies, to save the economy of uh, so many regions and, and countries by providing the funding necessary for the short-term work schemes, keep people employed without having all the repercussions uh, in a society which happens when there are large-scale uh, layoffs because people simply can't go to work or the companies are closed or, you know, everything that was happening in, in, in 2020 when the crisis uh, hit. So I strongly believe that cohesion policy did a very important job in making sure the socioeconomic effects of the pandemic, which were horrible, obviously, were not even worse. So we softened uh, the blow. The use of the cohesion policy funds in the context of the war in Ukraine is still evolving. In fact, the Commissioner for Internal Market, Thierry Breton, has announced the Commission plans to ramp up the EU ammunition production capacity, which would need to be strengthened to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia. The Commission proposal to financially support the reinforcement of the Union's ammunition production capacity includes the cohesion policy funds as well, that the Member State may use to reinforce their defense industries. We don't know how the final regulation will look like, and it's still to be seen if and which member states decide to use the cohesion policy funds for this purpose. Regio waves. Regio waves. Regio waves. Regio waves. Regio waves. I would like to welcome our second guest for this episode, Antonia Battaglia, up until recently policy officer at DG Near. Hello, Antonia. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And the very first thing that I would like to ask you is what your DG does at the European Commission and in which geographic area it operates. Okay. Thank you very much, first of all, for having me here, Fiorella. Thanks a lot. 
yes, I have been working uh, for the past four years in Digineer, uh, in particular on disinformation in the neighborhood. And I've been working on Ukraine as well. For a framework, uh, Digineer is in charge of the neighborhood policy and enlargement policy of the commission. So you have the southern neighborhood, the western Balkans, and then uh, the eastern partnership countries. Coming from your perspective, do you think that something has changed in the way that the EU takes decisions since the aggression of Ukraine? What, as you rightly said, has very quickly changed over the past year and immediately after the Russian invasion is that the European Union has reacted massively and in a very fast way uh, to the invasion for several reasons that which we will explore, which have also changed uh, the setup of the DG where I work, because all of a sudden there was the creation of a new directorate which is in charge of Ukraine. And the enlargement policy of uh, the European Union has welcomed two new guests, which are now uh, Ukraine and Moldova, uh, which have been declared by uh, the European Council last year as officially candidate states of the Union. Georgia has been uh, inscribed as well as not a candidate, but on the path towards the EU, meaning that it still has to complete essential reforms, but uh, the Council has taken into consideration Georgia as well for the enlargement process. Coming to what uh, Europe has been doing, the European Union has reacted very fast, as we said, for several reasons. The first, the threat of Russia and the invasion to Ukraine are at our doors. The invasion has been an existential threat to the Union, and this is why the reaction has been so strong. At the same time, there has been also the question of humanitarian aid and the arrival of millions of refugees, which has questioned immediately the EU and urged the EU to go into action immediately. And of course, there was also the energy question and the gas question. So all of this has harnessed a very strong reaction, a coordinated reaction. There has been a huge strength and unanimity, which I think has never been shown before. That's very interesting. Thank you very much, Antonia. Could you help us understand the financial figures of the help that the EU is giving to Ukraine? We'll just give you some key figures. The overall, so far, and we talk as of today, the overall contribution has been 68 billion euros already over the past year, which is a lot. Of these, uh, 733 have been made available to help civilians affected by the war, and this includes a lot of different actions, both people arriving in the EU, but people also internally displaced, uh, which needed help. Uh, via the EU civil protection mechanism, uh, aid has been channeled uh, to Ukraine immediately by the 27 EU member states, but also by other present in the um, civil protection me- mechanism as Norway, Turkey, North Macedonia, Iceland and Serbia. There has been a lot which has been done in support of the population for housing, protection uh, units and kits, temporary shelters, water supplies, food, you really name it. And actually a lot has been done also with evacuation of people who were in need of hospitalization, serious hospitalization through the solidarity lanes, uh, which the EU has put in place, which has these really roads uh, from Ukraine to the EU. More than 2,000 uh, patients in need of urgent hospitalization have been distributed uh, to the different EU countries. 
there has been also been put in place support for the member states, which have been the most uh, the most affected, with the cohesion action for refugees in Europe, uh, with the fast care mechanism, and um, with other mechanisms, for example, the Interreg Next, uh, involving Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, and Ukraine. You mentioned before the protection to the refugees through the temporary protection mechanism, which has been triggered on the 4th of March last year. And then, as I mentioned before, there was the creation of this uh, new great concept, the solidarity lanes, which are actually corridors for transport of essential goods both ways to Ukraine, but also from Ukraine, uh, grain, cereals, and uh, you know very well all the food security issue that has been actually eased by uh, the creation of the solidarity lanes. Another thing that I would like to ask you is if the EU is already thinking about the reconstruction of Ukraine and how would that process look like? Yes, actually, as we can imagine already now, there will be a major financial uh, effort which will be needed to rebuild Ukraine once uh, the war is over. The idea is that it will be led by Ukrainian authorities in partnership, in very close partnership with the EU and the key partners such as G7 and G20 and other third countries, but also with the main international financial institutions and international organizations. Uh, the platform actually is hosted uh, within the Commission, and uh, you have to think about it, as I said, uh, as a big international effort led by the European Union, driven by the Ukrainian authorities. All right. So in order to receive those funds, does Ukraine need to go through reforms? Enlargement is a merit-based process for all the different enlargement countries, for the Western Balkans, for Ukraine uh, as well. And Ukraine has to undertake uh, very ambitious uh, reforms. They have already started because they have, as we said before, they are already in the enlargement process. And this will be uh, running parallel to the reconstruction. Talking about the reforms to access the EU, I would like to explore with you uh, some potential enlargement issues. So the Western Balkans countries have been waiting to join the EU since several years. Some studies now alarm that if Ukraine joins suddenly, it can destabilize the area. There is even a poll made last year that was showing that the Serbians were not supporting anymore the EU membership. Do you think that the EU solidarity toward Ukraine may affect the relationships in an area that is so crucial for EU security? No, I don't think at all. I think it will strengthen the security of the Western Balkans as well. And I'm speaking really on personal terms. Sometimes I believe that the passion and the love for the European Union will go even more uh, and more on the East in the sense that we will then, then have the Western Balkans and then we will have one day Ukraine, one day uh, Georgia, one day Moldova, which will be European. And you feel that there is a love and attachment and an aspiration towards Europe that some of the oldest European countries do not show anymore because we take many things for granted. So I think that uh, strengthening Ukraine, uh, Moldova, which is facing a very tough time, and Georgia will be key. And I think it will also help the Western Balkans. Of course, if you think also not only uh, geostrategically, but also in terms of the enlargement of the internal market, this will benefit a lot the Western Balkans as well, and it will constitute a major, uh, a major security hub. Of course, enlargement is a merit-based process. They have done a lot at different uh, speed and at different levels. 
there is a lot to be done for, for some of them, but the path is clear. And it is not that Ukraine will make their accession uh, slower. No, it doesn't work because within the Commission, there are departments working at the same time. It's not that we work on one and we don't work on the others anymore. And I think that the goal of European member states, uh, now that they've really understood fully the threat coming from Russia, is to make enlargement uh, a priority on European agenda again, which was not the case to until February 2022. And if you observe uh, the positioning of the different European member states uh, to enlargement, it has shifted incredibly during the last year. France, which was always skeptical, has turned really uh, 30, 60 uh, degrees and has become one of the major supporters of the enlargement. So it has been really pushing at European Council for uh, Ukraine and Moldova. When it comes to Serbia, with their different specificities, uh, there has been also a lot of foreign interference, malign foreign interference on the public space, on the information space. In Serbia in particular, we have observed uh, with colleagues that there has been a lot of Russian influence in the media. So. We also have to take this into consideration when we read surveys and polls. Of course, in the different countries, there are different political uh, situations. Uh, local governments have a lot of responsibilities in promoting the EU values and in sticking to the EU agenda. So it's also they also have to do some of their homework at home. And sometimes there have been some confusion in some of the Western Balkan countries about really where the country was standing on which ground with the EU or not with the EU. All right, so I have a few comments on what you just said. I think that for sure governments have a lot of responsibility, especially when it comes to disinformation that is spread. But governments also have oppositions that can challenge the official narrative. For example, if we look at what happened the last decade during the time of the austerity, we've seen that the opposition against the EU was coming from within, from official parties that were participating to the democratic debate. So what to do when an opposition toward the EU is happening in the public discourse? Yeah, actually, that's a great question because actually you have, uh, of course, to respect uh, what happens in their democracies in the different countries, but uh, the European Union has already put in place and will continue, will need to uh, raise its attention on how you counter foreign malign influence and disinformation. But let's say you can communicate positively, strategically, you can uh, debunk uh, fake news or disinformation, but you also have to respect, of course, the information that comes from the government, institutional uh, information, even when it is uh, not in line with the EU values or with some of the facts. We have seen this. We have seen this in many of our uh, Western countries. We have now an explosion of disinformation on Ukraine in the global south and in Africa. There is really an information war going on. So the only thing that you can institutionally do, you want to remain on the positive side, on the fair side. You don't want to copy what Russia does with their uh, armies of trolls. If I were to put in place an information strategy, I would work uh, with the platform, and this comes to the Digital Services Act, strengthen positive communication and intervene on national debates. You cannot oblige governments to say, this was done by the EU, this was not done by me, or it is not true that the EU did this, I used it for my own political internal reasons. You cannot do it. 
but you can uh, overcome that in a sense, trying to communicate at the same time on the positive things which have been done. Thank you so much for this. I have another political question for you, but I would like to talk about the member state now. The war in Ukraine is accelerating pre-existing trends as the need to cut dependencies from fossil fuels, for example. We know that we need to go much faster to respect the emission cut target of 2030 and 2050. Do you think that the war in Ukraine will strengthen the commitment of the member states? Or it may be the case that if we go too fast, there may be political divisions on the need to go through the transitions. Well, first of all, um, already let's go back and see from where we start in the sense that one year and a half ago, we would have never imagined that EU, Europe, not only the Union, but Europe as such at large, could spend, uh, could immediately cut dependence on Russian gas, which has happened this year. So this has been like a bang immediate achievement which has been reached with great unanimity. So this has been done. I think that uh, on the dependence and on the different uh, use of energy, we will continue on this road, on this path. I think that the member states are absolutely unanimous and uh, coherent more than maybe what they have been for uh, the supply of ammunition or other key questions or, you know, but on this, I think that there is absolute unanimity and this works in the sense of uh, the Green Deal, absolutely. When it comes to reaching the goals of the Green Deal, we are lagging far behind. I mean, we are already 20 years behind. You know, I think that uh, the more we go on, uh, the more the member states uh, will continue on this path. I personally don't think that they will go backwards. I don't think that there, are, that there is a necessity to go backwards. I don't see in this specific case that they are divided. I think that it will continue. Probably it will be slow. It will not be as fast as we would like, but I don't think that there will be step backwards. Do you think that the war in Ukraine may change the next EU budget? Uh, for example, that we may see more resources on the fence? Yeah, as you said, Europe, it's a peace project, but it always reacts on big crises. I think it happens in the continent most than anywhere else because we are a union and because just because we are a union, we can react more more fast, which is kind of a contradiction if you think in uh, political terms. But it is what has been what has been shown. I think the priorities have changed. If you think about how much has been dedicated to the health part, the creation also of an agency to put in place all this transition within the European Commission, within the European Union, and then the shift to a de facto defense mechanism. Yes. The priorities will change. I believe that uh, in the next budget, Europe will be very much committed to research, to the Green Deal as well. But of course, the component of defense is already there. I remember in, there was a discussion in 2018 and 2019. Uh, Macron was, President Macron was very much pushing for a European defense mechanism. It didn't happen. Many member states were contrary, in particular the Baltic countries, because they didn't want to take out resources from NATO and they needed, rightly so, this protection. But actually, this coordination mechanism is there. 
it does work, it is working. So I think this will be strengthened, which is a kind of a new chapter uh, in European history. It is already taking place. So uh, I believe personally, again, this is a personal uh, comment, that there will be a voice, a stronger voice for that in the next European budget, together with research, which is doing a lot, the Green Deal and uh, the enlargement. Do you have the impression that the fact that there is an enemy at the border can push the European integration? I absolutely uh, believe so. And actually, you asked the wrong person because working in the enlargement and neighborhood, <laughs> uh, DG, I strongly believe in uh, enlargement as one of the key factors of stability in, uh, in the continent. I believe that uh, enlargement is very much on the agenda, as you said, because of the threat which is there. But if you imagine in big terms what the European continent will be in 10 years, Well, you have to take into consideration that the regime which is in Moscow now cannot hold for that long. There will be huge changes coming. There will be probably a disintegration of uh, Russia. We don't know what may come. This is just something on which I personally speculate sometimes. But there will be, of course, a huge change which will have an enormous, enormous consequences on all the region. If you think also uh, Azerbaijan, Armenia and all the other countries which you know, are uh, suffer, let's say, from uh, the presence of Russia or have uh, strong uh, past historical ties. So you have to think of the continent as really changing in the next uh, 10, 15 years. And Russia, what happens is in Russia is key to what happens in, in Brussels, more than any other place. For the Union to be a global actor, at least, at the very least, we need to have uh, a unified uh, foreign policy. The Commission von der Leyen presented itself to be a geopolitical commission. Do you think that in this context uh, it had succeeded and uh, what can be its legacy for the next one? I think it has succeeded, especially in the context of Ukraine, because in a few weeks, the foreign policies uh, of the member states were coordinated. And actually, I think that we have seen also a big shift uh, inside institutions, because the Commission has taken in this context a very strong leadership role, which has been already a little bit announced uh, with the COVID crisis. Member states have coordinated uh, within uh, the instrument of the Council, but the Commission has really acted on the foreign international landscape uh, as a de facto foreign agent, uh, if we want to, to, to really be uh, very concrete. I think this has created the path for a more strong, for a stronger Europe, and I think this will continue, this will not go back. There is this credibility, uh, there is this strong entity now which uh, is backed by the member states and I think it cannot go back. There, is, there has been a kind of a shift in history and this new conscience of the fact that Europe has acted as one cannot be uh, taken away. It has happened now, it is concretely there, Europe is speaking as one with the differences because there are differences inside and we do know that our, our countries have different stands, or have had different stands on the ammunition issue, on the enlargement, we do know. But there is a unity which had never been there before, so strong. So I believe that it will continue to do so, especially because now we've come, uh, we are already in the second year of the aggression. There is a lot which has to be put in place where member states and their unity are needed and are key. 
reconstruction of Ukraine. There is the issue of Moldova. Uh, Moldova needs a lot of support. There are the Western Balkans and there are all the other issues which we already named. So I think we cannot go backwards. Thank you, Antonia. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And thank you all for having listened to this episode of Radio Waves. If you have comments, suggestions or questions on the topic we covered, you can reach me on Instagram as flowlove or on LinkedIn with just my name. You can also find DigiRegions on social media. You can use the handle EU in my region for Instagram and Twitter and Europe in my region for Facebook. And if you like this episode, the best thing you can do to help us to reach more people interested in EU policies and politics is to share it or rate it on the podcast platform you are using. That's all for now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.